Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host Matt Fox from Boston University. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, Haley. I have a brand new office with windows for the first time in 13 years, and so that is very good for my soul. However, you may hear ambulances going by quite a lot, more than you would have in previous versions of this one I've recorded for my office, so we'll just have to figure it out. It's nice ambient noise. Those those sirens yeah. going back. That is one way to look at it. Way to put a positive spin on it. You know, that's me. Glass always half full. Yeah. It was pointed out to me this morning by somebody who shall remain nameless that I tend to look on the pessimistic side of things. So it's good to have somebody who's got the optimistic side. Wait, you're just realizing that now? Was that a revelation to you? No, it wasn't a revelation to me, but it was okay. pointed out to me in a way that drove it home. Okay. Well, you're still a wonderful person, but you do look... <laughs> glass half empty a lot of the time. <laughs> no, it's not half empty. It's half empty. It's spilling and there's absolutely nothing you could do to refill it. That's how it is. Yeah, it's like shattered in half the yeah. glass. That's yeah. very unfortunate. But let's talk about something happy. So tell me something good that's gone on in your world or you've heard about in the, the past couple weeks. So I, I don't know if I would say this is something that's happened in the world, but happened to me. But I spent some time this summer biking around in southern Sweden. And I have to say... Oh. It is magnificent, and I would highly recommend it to anybody. Tell me more about this trip. So was it organized? Tell me everything. No, it was not organized. We just rented some bikes, and they have these fantastic bike paths that go from southern Sweden. They go all the way up to one of the major cities, so you can bike for a long time. We didn't have as much time, so we didn't get to do all that. But just biking through like beautiful coastal villages and then up into farm country, really, really good stuff. Wow, that is yeah. awesome. What a yeah. fun way to spend some some vacation time. Totally disconnected and wow, cool. And the really cool thing was you bike around for a while and then you come around, you're in farmland and you come around a corner and you come to this place that is like a southern United States barbecue joint in the middle of farmland in Sweden. So got to have some uh, St. Louis ribs and tacos and oh, good stuff. So because it's you, as a follow-up, I was going to ask, did you stop in the villages to get like croissants or lattes? or like cappuccino delicious things but I guess barbecue is next level bike food absolutely and then you got to get back on the bike after that so it's not easy <laughs> nothing like biking after some St. Louis ribs yep <laughs> sounds delicious now I want some ribs even though it's only morning time. how about you did you do anything fun I just took some time off and we have a cabin by the lake that we go to sometimes and so just you know did lake things swimming kayaking all that fun stuff so it was nice. it was nice to disconnect a little bit you can't go full-time all the time. You just need to disconnect and, and take some time to yourself. Totally agree. And this is going to be really annoying to our listeners when they hear this in what, like November or so or December. Yeah. And we're talking yes. about the summer, but yeah, it is what it is. Let this be your reminder that you should take some time off no matter what time of year it is. Self-care is important throughout the year. Hey, winter break is coming, right? So yeah. time to take some time off. Hopefully this doesn't yeah. get released in January or February, and then this won't make any sense. We might need to cut this segment out. <laughs> Yep, that sounds about right. But in exciting news, my son, my oldest son of three, is turning 10 this weekend. 
So it's also going to date us. But happy birthday to him who will never listen to this. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah, Dylan. And as his present, we are going to see the U.S. Open, which I'm very excited about. So you're going to New York. We're going to New York City. We said when each of you turn 10, you get to pick a flight that we can use our Delta points (laughs) to get there. And he wanted to go to New York City to A, see the Statue of Liberty, and B, see tennis. And I was like, Broadway? He's like, no, just tennis. (laughs) <laughs> I tried to interest him in all these exciting things about New York, but it's, it's just the tennis. So that'll be another fun thing that we have coming up right now. Okay, so I watch just about anything sports related, but tennis, I don't know. Tennis doesn't do it for me in quite the same way. I've watched a fair bit of the US Open because in our house, it's always on. But I don't know, just doesn't do it for me as much. This is like when I made a comment about soccer and, and how it's not the most interesting in my opinion. And the rabid soccer lobby was going to come after me now the tennis players are going to come after you well i did not as you said suggest that it's just good background noise you just said it's on all the time in your house it is on all the time when the u.s open is going on and i've watched a lot of it but yes sorry sorry to all our tennis fan (laughs) listeners i apologize all right we need to focus let's get back to the point so today we're talking about chapter 26 in the fourth edition of modern epidemiology it's a chapter called analysis of interaction. And this fits with our third season of the podcast where we're going through chapter by chapter talking about some questions we have, some issues that are raised about the content. And so today Matt and I are going to be talking about this chapter. So I love this chapter. I love analyses related to interaction because they're so interesting to me. And I think that in the real world, we are almost always thinking about interaction, but then in our analyses, we sometimes forget about that fact. And so I I really like the real world importance of this chapter. And so the chapter talks about different models of interactions, different measures of interactions. It talks about additive interaction or interaction on the additive scale, interaction on the multiplicative scale, talks about how we interpret these various types of interaction. Then it talks a little bit about qualitative interaction, which is when the interaction effects go in different directions, talks about the public health implications of findings of interaction, talks a little bit about biology and how what kind of inferences we can make or not make about biology from statistical types of interaction. And then I think it, oh, it wraps up a little bit discussing the differences or similarities between effect measure modification and interaction. So I really like this chapter. Matt, what's your overall couple sentences, if you could give a summary on on what you think about this chapter? Like you, I am a big fan of talking about, thinking about, and doing analyses of interaction. I'm curious because, you know, you talked about what this what's going on in this chapter and there's a lot of different things and you mentioned effect measure modification towards the end i'm curious do you make a big distinction between effect measure modification interaction statistical interaction and interdependence so this is a really important part of my thinking on this and i think it's a good place to start off the episode so interaction is different than effect measure modification so interaction really is of interest when you have two exposures that you're interested So interaction is said to be present when the effect of one exposure depends in in some way on the presence or absence of another exposure. So you you are interested in both of these exposures at the same time. The difference with effect measure modification is you have an exposure that you're interested in and you are interested in understanding is the effect of this exposure on my outcome different in levels of a third variable. So different among those who are yes for the 
third variable versus no for this third variable. Okay, so just to make it concrete, so if I'm talking about the effect of smoking on lung cancer, I want to know, mm -hmm. does the effect of smoking on lung cancer differ among people who were and were not as exposed to asbestos? Exactly. So that's a question of effect measure modification. If I were interested in understanding what is the joint effect of smoking and asbestos on lung cancer risk, that would be a question of interaction because I have these two exposures that I'm interested in, smoking and asbestos, and I want to understand their effect together on this outcome that we're interested in in lung cancer. Is that a good summary of, of the distinction between the two in your mind? It's not the way that I think about it. No. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's, I mean, it's similar. It's just the different terms. So in my way of thinking about this, interaction is a general term that refers to everything that could potentially fall under this rubric that we've been talking about. Whereas I would distinguish effect measure modification, interdependence, and statistical interaction. But I put them all under the heading of interaction. Now, that might not be technically correct and may not be the way that the book goes about it. But that's the way I think of it, in part because I think when people talk about interaction, they are often talking about each of these different things at different times. And therefore, to me, that's the overarching heading. But the conceptual distinction I was making about do you have one exposure interested in or do you have two exposures interested in? I think that's an important starting point for these discussions. And then there's a lot of nuance and a lot of subtypes of interaction falling under that umbrella, as you talked about. But I think that there's that distinction at the outset that I try to make. So to me, th that would be the distinction between effect measure modification and interdependence. So effect measure modification, which as the book lays out in extensive detail, can be on the relative scale or the additive scale. Mm -hmm. And which one you're going to be interested in is going to depend on the question that you're asking and what you care about. But ultimately, effect measure modification in the way that I think about it makes no causal statement about the third variable. And I think that's what you were saying when you were referring to interaction. I would say effect measure modification, that we're interested in the effect of smoking on lung cancer. And I want to know, is the effect different, whether it be on the relative or the additive scale? Is the effect different among those who were exposed to asbestos and among those who were not exposed to asbestos? But I'm not going to make any causal statement about the asbestos exposure. So it could be, I mean, it could be causally related, but it could also just be a, a marker for something. So the example that I, I don't know, I came across and it, it made sense to me was, let's say we're interested in the effect of some kind of a, a surgery on back pain. And you could stratify that effect by the amount that the surgeon charges. And you might find that the effect is greater in one group versus the other. But I don't think we think that therefore, if the, let's say the effect is greater amongst those who charge more, I don't think we think that if we just got the people who charged less to charge more, that the effect would be greater. I think we think that it's just a marker for quality of the surgeon or quality of the hospital or some other thing that may have a causal relationship. So to me, that's effect measure modification. Whereas interdependence would be when those two exposures biologically or physically interact in some way to produce the outcome. Okay, Matt, so you've used this this phrase interdependence. Can you uh, explain that a little bit so I understand what you're talking about? Yeah, as you have pointed out to me before, this is, I think, not a term that appears in the text, or if it does, it doesn't appear much, but it's a, it's a term that I am used to using. I, I don't remember exactly who started me using it, but interdependence, I think, is what in the text, they, they talk about the interaction contrast, and this is a place where the term interaction is being specifically used to refer to the biological or physical interaction, although with caveats that 
we can come back to, but that biologic or physical or mechanistic interaction. And so they use the term interaction contrast, which is why, again, why I think most people, including you, would say interaction means that biological or physical interaction. I would just distinguish the terminology to use interdependence to refer to that so that it's clear that we are talking about that physical, biological, mechanistic interaction rather than effect modification, which I think they all sort of get thrown together when people say interaction. And I find confusing. Yeah, I guess I come at it from a bit of a different framework. So I agree with the concept that you're coming at, which is this idea of interdependence between these two, let's say, exposures you're interested in. So that's why when I describe interaction, when I'm teaching about it, I say, you know, you have these two exposures you're interested in, and you're just calling that interdependence. I, as I said, conceptually view that as a different question than a question that's focused on what is the effect of this exposure in one subgroup versus another subgroup. You know, the effect of exposure on outcome differs in levels of your third variable. And so I think that we're just saying the same thing using using different words, basically. I would agree with you. And I, I think it's becoming clearer to me that this is a terminology that we use fairly commonly here in BU, but may not be commonly used everywhere. But I just want to point out, so I was just scanning my notes. And one of the phrases that I clipped from the chapter says, the only way there can be no interaction on any scale is for at least one of the two exposures to have no effect on the outcome at all. Now, we can get into what that means later, because that is something probably worth talking about. But to me, just the phrasing there saying there can be no interaction when they're talking about scales, they're actually talking to me be about effect measure modification, not about interaction specifically, because you don't refer to interaction being on a scale. Interaction is on one scale or the other if we're talking about biologic or mechanistic interaction. You could talk about additive or multiplicative interaction. In a biologic sense? No, but when you're discussing, is there interaction present on the additive scale? Or is there interaction present on the multiplicative scale? So if you if you do that, then to me, the concept you are getting at is effect measure modification because you're talking about scale. This is why I find the term interaction to be confusing and to be the blanket term as opposed to the specific term, which I would use interdependence there. Wow, we really see this very differently. I'm surprised. But if you want to make a causal statement about both exposures, then I think you need to be on the additive scale. I know there are people who do not agree. Yeah, I guess I view it differently because if you are on the multiplicative scale and you control for the effect of all the confounders, why can you not make a causal statement about that? Because if you have an effect of the exposure, at least at least one of the exposures on the outcome, you will by definition have effect measure modification on at least one scale. That doesn't mean you have biologic interaction. So you could have no effect measure modification on the different scale. That would almost inevitably lead to effect measure modification on the relative scale. And I would argue that would be an indication of no biologic or physical interaction, even though you have relative effect measure modification. You do not agree? No, I I guess I make a concerted effort to separate effect measure modification from interaction. And I thought that that's what the chapter was attempting to do because they also don't mention effect measure modification till like the last page or the last section. And so I guess I just don't necessarily agree that you can't make causal claims about multiplicative scale interaction. You would not be alone. Right. (laughs) The chapter starts off with the section about measures of interaction and scale of interaction. So when I was a student, I remember learning about this continuum of interaction. And there is an additive benchmark and a multiplicative benchmark. And you want to understand whether your estimates deviate from this additive or multiplicative benchmark. And it can go above. So you have super additive or super multiplicative or below. You can have sub additive or sub multiplicative interaction. So I think it's important to acknowledge that you can assess 
less interaction on different scales. Do you view that as the way that you think about it, Matt? So I would say that in the way that I look at it, you can have effect measure modification on different scales. So in other words, the effect of your exposure on your outcome can differ within levels of a third variable, and it can differ on the additive scale, or it can differ on the relative scale, or it can differ on both, or it can differ on neither. That to me is covering the concept of effect measure modification. The effect under a particular measure at the relative risk, the risk difference differs within levels of a third variable. I wouldn't necessarily call that interaction. I would call, I would focus on the term effect measure modification there to distinguish that I'm not making a causal claim about the third variable. So what if you're looking at the joint effects of two variables and you're doing so on the risk ratio scale for simplicity? So when I think about that, I think about that as assessing multiplicative interaction, but I'm sensing or based on your answer that we're viewing that terminology differently. So tell me how you would assess that? You would look at the joint effect in the doubly unexposed. You'd look at the effect in the group that is exposed to one, but not the other, the group that's exposed to the other, but not the, the first one, and then the risk in the doubly exposed. And you would divide out the risk in the doubly unexposed group from each of the other cells. And then what you're left with in the doubly exposed cell is the joint effect of those two exposures that you're looking at. And that to me is, is a measure of multiplicative interaction. So you're saying that if I have departure from multiplicativity, in other words, if the effect of exposure A, the effect of exposure B, and the effect of exposure A and B all compared to neither A nor B. Correct. If the effect of A times the effect of B is not equal to the effect of A and B compared to neither A nor B, then I have departure from multiplicativity. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. You said it much nicer than me. No, I, I'm not sure I did, but I explain, I said it in a different way. So then the question is, are you saying that that deviation, if I find that the multiplication of the individual effects does not equal the effect of the doubly exposed compared to the doubly unexposed, is an indication of that physical or biological interaction? I would call that deviation from exact multiplicativity or the presence of multiplicative interaction. And that would be my conclusion about that without making reference to biology or or mechanism in that that context. That strikes me as totally reasonable. I would just then distinguish it as effect measure modification, because then if we don't, then what is the difference then between effect measure modification on the relative scale and interaction as you're using it on the relative scale? Again, it comes down to the question that you're asking. And I think this is something they emphasize in in the book a couple times about the importance of the question you're asking in guiding these types of analyses. Is your interest in understanding the effect of the joint effect of these two variables, these two exposures, or is your interest in understanding the effect of one exposure on outcome in strata of the third variable? And so conceptually, I, I view those as a different question. If I'm posing it as a researcher, which one am I interested in understanding better? And if I'm interested in the joint effects, how could there be joint effects without the physical or biological interaction or mechanistic interaction, whatever we want to call this? The reason I'm distinguishing between the two concepts is what I'm saying is that if you're interested in the joint exposure, then I think you are getting at that physical or biological interaction. And that, in my view of the world, and I fully acknowledge there are people who do not agree with me on this, but in my view of the world, that can only be assessed on the absolute scale. 
the different scale. Can it be assessed on the multiplicative scale if you have an understanding of the background risk in the population? So I, we probably should distinguish here when we say evaluating whether or not there is deviation, you can evaluate deviation using relative measures. You can assess deviation from additivity. So in that sense, I would say yes, but I would say you're still not getting at deviation from multiplicativity. You're getting at deviation from additivity. You're just using relative measures to do it. So there is the relative excess risk due to what you would say interaction, I would say interdependence, fine. That is a measure that we can use to take relative measures and still assess departures from additivity. But I still think then we're getting at departures from additivity, not departures from multiplicativity. Yes, I agree with those because they're measures of departures from additivity using you know more common modeling approaches that get you at odds ratios or such that allow you to make conclusions about additivity. But I think that they're very useful as measures of departures from additivity using relative effect estimates. For sure. But I would say typically that would be in the case where you have case control data and you don't have the baseline risk information. If you have that, why wouldn't you just then use the additive scale and just look at departures from additivity? This is a million dollar question about why people are so obsessed with logistic regression <laughs> and why people just use that model so often to just, oh, I have an odds ratio, even though I could calculate a risk ratio or a Poisson model to calculate a rate ratio, potentially, I'm just going to rely on my good old logistic regression. So I think that, yes, ideally speaking, you would only want to use that in a setting where you, you have case control data. But I think there are a lot of times where people just fall back on the logistic regression model, even though there's other options. Totally agree. So then the question becomes, have we come to an agreement or do we still disagree on whether deviation from multiplicativity still gets at biologic interaction or physical interaction or mechanistic interaction? I would say no. I would say no, but it's still telling you that there is the presence of multiplicative interaction. That's the terminology I would use. I don't think that it necessarily tells you about the presence of a biologic or mechanistic interaction with that statement, but I think that the way I would describe that situation is the presence of multiplicative interaction. And so wouldn't that imply though then that we can't make a statement about the joint effects if we can't make a statement about biological or physical or mechanistic interaction? Such an awkward phrase to say, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. Well, so joint effects is a mathy statistically great, right? It, as you described, are the effects equal to what you would expect, greater than or less than what you would expect? So you can assess the presence of that relationship. What inference you attach to that, what conclusions you draw from that is a different concept in my mind. I think if you found deviation from exact multiplicativity, that would not allow you to make a conclusion about any kind of mechanism or biology underlying that relationship. It just is there in the numbers. That's just how it, you know you calculated it. But it doesn't tell you about anything about the underlying biology necessarily about those relationships, but it's still there. And would you be more comfortable drawing conclusions about biologic interaction if you saw departure from additivity with all the caveats, the caveats that we have controlled for all the confounding, there's no selection bias, no measurement error. We have reason to believe there could be a plausible biologic joint mechanism that exists. Yes, yes. I would feel comfortable making that conclusion if there were a departure from exact additivity with caveats given the particular situation. But I find that when I'm thinking about this, and one of the most common things that people talk about is you use additive interaction to assess public health relevance or to assess public health interaction, or there's like a whole bunch 
bunch of different phrases that people use. And this chapter in several different points lays out really nicely why that is the case. I think that they use this asbestos and lung cancer example. There's a couple other examples. There's one using Giardia later on in the chapter describing why you can make those types of inferences or those types of conclusions based on an analysis of additive interactions. So I think that's a really nice contribution from this chapter. It helped me understand the concepts even more. And are you able to describe why it is that that is the case? Why the additive scale tells us more about the public health relevance? Sure. So one of the arguments that they make a couple times in this chapter is about we live in a a world that is resource limited. And if there are specific individuals that you want to intervene upon to have the maximum benefit for your intervention, understanding the specific number of people that would be helped from that intervention is a question of additive interaction, of, of joint effect of these two variables. And so I think that that's why I feel most comfortable making those sorts of conclusions. Yeah, they have this nice part of the chapter where they talk about why you would want to assess interaction. And again, to me, that would signify interaction in the broad sense, not in the specific sense of biologic interaction. They talk about resources may, be only, may only be sufficient to address a small fraction of the target population. And if this is the case, then it may be important to identify the subgroups in which the intervention or treatment is likely to have the largest effect. And I would absolutely agree with that. But there, there's where I think the difference between the biologic interaction and the effect measure modification concepts start to deviate because you can have a situation where the larger effect on the additive scale is the opposite of the strata that has the larger effect on the relative scale. And so depending on which scale you used, if you believed both of those models were giving you accurate information about either biologic interaction or which population is best to target, then you could come to completely opposite conclusions depending on which scale you used. Whereas I think the additive scale points you to the strata where the effect is going to be most largest in terms of the things we care about in public health. So curing people of disease, preventing suffering, preventing disease, whatever it is, the different scale tells you that. And the relative scale doesn't necessarily tip it. Well, it can give you the the opposite conclusion in some cases. Yeah. So the example that I, I really like about is on page 625 for everyone that's following along page by page. And it says, if we only had 100 doses of the drug and we had to decide which group to treat, we could cure three people if we used all the drug supply and those who are G equals zero. We could cure six people if we use the drug supply among those with G equals one. So that's a, answering a question that's related to additive interaction. Yeah, and just to note, there, that is based on the analysis of a set of risks that they have set up in which if you looked at effect measure modification, you would come to the same conclusion about which strata is better to treat if you use the different scale, but you would come to the exact opposite conclusion if you use the relative scale. And, and there, you know, there they are making the point that the additive scale is the one that guides you to the place where you could get the biggest benefit. Yeah, and it says the multiplicative scale can indicate the wrong subgroup to treat. So this is what Matt was saying about sometimes it can lead to the wrong answer depending on what the risks are in in the specific subgroups that you're looking at. So that point is underscored really several times in this chapter that if you want to understand the effect of an intervention as we always are in the real world, don't have unlimited resources, but you want to figure out where am I going to get the maximal benefit, those are questions that you should be looking on the additive scale to be answering. I thought there's this nice section later on in the chapter about why they're saying, you know, why do some people prefer the multiplicative scale? Mostly because it's convenient in the in the software. And some people say that there's less heterogeneous
homogeneity and ratio estimates, which I didn't really agree with. I actually don't even understand that argument, but we'll just move on from that. No, no, no. I think I actually think it's worth talking about that a little bit because this is where I get a little bit of concern, right? So when you talk about the difference scale being the one that gives us the best information on the public health action, you can also come up with a nice, fairly simple model of the universe where it makes sense that risks would add. There are exceptions to this, of course, right? In infectious diseases, there are things transmitted through populations on scales that are clearly not additive, right? One person infects five people, they, they get exponential growth. But generally speaking, there's a simple model of the universe that you could demonstrate where effects should be expected to add. And so if we have departure from additivity, it would suggest that there is that biologic interaction going on or physical interaction, whatever you want to call it. And so to me, it makes conceptual sense that that is the scale we want to use for the interaction, as you're calling it. But the argument against it has been there have been a number of papers that have made the claim that there is more homogeneity in relative measures than there are in additive measures, meaning that the effect of a smoking on lung cancer is similar across populations on the relative scale, but might differ on the different scale. And so that would be an indication that maybe the world actually follows a relative model. The problems with that, though, are, as I've seen it, and this has been pointed out to be a num- by a number of people, and there's a, a paper that I think Charlie Poole and Tyler Vanderwill wrote on this, which is that the most common way that people use to assess that is looking at p-values, p-values for you know whether there's an interaction between your effect of your exposure on your outcome across some other factor. And the challenge there is that the power of that test differs on the relative scale and the additive scale. So you can't easily compare to say, if you're just saying if there's a statistically significant statistical interaction, that would be an indication of heterogeneity. You're comparing apples and oranges. And so no one's really been able to solve that problem. So I don't know what it ultimately tells us. Yeah, I actually don't know what it tells you. But I think that's an interesting argument that I hadn't really thought about, about the power of the different tests. And I think in general, Charlie Poole has made some really nice contributions to this area about using relative effect measures as quote unquote better to assess causality. And and he believes that that is not true, I think. Right, correct. Okay, so he believes that is not true. And there's this section that I wrote in the margin. This is cool because these are the things I think are cool. But he traces this notion back the papers by Hornfield on, on lung cancer and the idea that specificity is important as a criteria for causality. So specificity referring to if you see an effect of your exposure on your outcome in one population that in some way, but not another population, that in some way gives you an indication that there is a causal effect. And we now know that specificity is actually not a criterion for causality. And so using this this argument to support the idea of relative effects being better for causality is kind of a house of cards that you know you blow on it and it falls over, which I thought was an interesting history lesson about why some people refer to relative effects as better. So that was that was a cool lesson learned from this chapter for me. Yeah, and I agree. And this is, I think, a case where we have historically done it in a particular way. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. So can we go back a little bit to the effect measure modification area? So there, I think we agreed that there we are not making any statement about the joint effects. We're really just talking about the effect of one exposure on the others. I think a couple of important points that the chapter makes, which is number one, that, and we sort of started talking about this, but we didn't really flesh it out, is if the exposure has an effect on the outcome, some effect, and at least one of the strangers of the modifier. And, you know, I think there's an additional caveat, which is, and there are differences in baseline risk of the outcome in the two levels of the modifier, then by definition, 
modification, you have to have effect measure modification on at least one scale, potentially both. And if that's the case, it's an indication that you can get different answers, not just sort of like we were talking about before, where you can get the effect is larger in one versus the other. You could come up with the answer that using the additive scale, I find no effect measure modification. That would almost guarantee you would find effect measure modification on the relative scale. And so by they're going to give you different answers, not just on the magnitude, but on whether or not there is effect measure modification. That's okay if all you care about is effect measure modification. But if you really do care about that sort of biological interaction, or you care about that public health relevance, then I think that's the argument for why we care most about the different scale, because it is actually telling us about the things that we care about. The relative scale in that case could give us the answer that there is interaction when there isn't, or in theory, vice versa, although I suspect that happens less often, and we could come to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, so this was a question I was thinking about as I was reading the chapter about this. So it's clear, and I think we're on the same page, that if you are interested in the effect of a, to, to make an intervention in the population, you should really be looking at additive scale or the different scale when you're, you're making that conclusion. And the multiplicative scale can sometimes give you the wrong answer. Are there situations in epidemiology in which we would be interested in the multiplicative scale to examine something that we're not necessarily going to be intervening on. So let's say this obviously deviates somewhat from the, the causal framework, but let's say we have something, a factor that we're interested in, in learning more about. Is there, why is the multiplicative scale so bad? I, I think I was trying to figure out a scenario in which maybe the multiplicative scale isn't as bad as people say it is. The answer is there has to be. There has to be cases where it would make sense, but I don't know what they are. So I, I don't want to make a blanket statement that it would never be beneficial. I mean, I gave the example of infectious diseases where you you might find that there is, it might not be multiplicative, but there there is some other, well, I don't know what else it would be, but that things don't necessarily add. But other than that, and even then, I don't know how you would deal with it in practical terms. But other than that, I, I don't know where you would come up with a situation where the multiplicative scale would give you useful information beyond the case where the direction and the ordering, not the magnitude per se, but because you can't compare the magnitude on different scales, but the ordering of the effect, you know, which one is larger is consistent across the additive and the relative scales. But again, if we think that the additive scale is the one that gives us the right answer, that would be the one we should be using. It gives you the right answer to the public health question or the, the real world question about interventions. What other question would there be that would be of importance that we would want to know about other than the mechanistic or the public health question? Right. So that's what I was trying to ask you. I don't know what that would look like, but is there a scenario in which that would be the case? I don't know. You know, when you're thinking about predictive modeling or descriptive, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just, I don't have an answer to the question. I just, I'm, I'm trying to think of different scenarios where that plausibly could be true. Yep. Fair enough. I, I just don't have the answer to that. So let me read you this section from the text because I think it gets at a number of the things that we've been talking about here. So in summary, if we are interested in identifying which subpopulations it is best to target with a particular intervention, then assessing effect heterogeneity is fine and only the confounding factors of the relation between the primary exposure and outcome need to be considered. Though even here, it is sometimes argued control for other factors can help with external validity and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I'll read the second part of this in a second, but just to dissect that. So there we're getting at interventions, but now we're saying assessing effect heterogeneity, which could be heterogeneity on the absolute scale or the different scale, is fine. And we only need to think about confounding of the exposure outcome relationship, not the modifier outcome 
hookup relationship. Correct. Yeah. I struggle with that a little bit because again, if, if we are trying to figure out where to intervene, I would argue we want to focus on the different scale, not just general effect heterogeneity, but they're not really getting at that issue. And it could have been in the paragraph before it. So I won't critique that specifically. Then they say, if we're interested in potentially intervening on the secondary factor to change the effects of the primary intervention, or we are interested in assessing mechanistic interaction described below, then we want measures of causal interaction, and we would need to control for confounding of the relationships between both factors and the outcome. So I think it's this term causal interaction that maybe takes the terms that you've been using and the term that I've been using. So you've just been saying interaction, I've been saying interdependence, and maybe those come together at causal interaction. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And and as I was reading that, I sat for a little while thinking about causal interaction, because I'm not sure I've heard that term used in this way before. I've heard of interaction in the causal inference framework and that kind of thing. But I, I really actually, you're right, that it is kind of a unifying framework for what we have been talking about. Okay, let me read you one other phrase here. They say, it is common for the effect of one exposure on an outcome to depend in some way on the presence or absence of another exposure. When this is the case, we say there is interaction between the two exposures. So to me, that implies depend. It's not clear what depend means. So depend, does that mean that the measure depends on the presence or absence of another exposure? I don't think so. I think that means biologic interaction because we're using the word depend. I think that's causal. And therefore we say there is interaction. So to me, that is getting at interaction. That would imply interaction is effectively a causal term, but I don't know. Well, so that's what I would consider. And I think what the textbook presents as the kind of the generic definition of interaction. It's actually the first sentence of the chapter. It is common for the effect of one exposure on an outcome to depend in some way on the presence or absence of another exposure. Depend is a very vague word in in that sentence. Well, I agree. I agree. It's a little bit vague, but I mean, depend is different from differ, right? If you said that the effects differ, then I would say that just tells me about effect measure modification. Agreed. Oh, I agree with that. Depend sounds causal to me. Depend tells you, sorry, I I think vague is, is not the right word. I didn't mean vague. The word depend in that context could be taken to mean a lot of different things. Because from a purely, again, a, a numbers perspective, where there is relative interaction or multiplicative interaction, sorry, the effect of those exposures depend on each other in a multiplicative way. It's not telling you anything about causation in, in that sentence. So you mean depend mathematically, depend Correct. The, the measure. That's what I mean. So it depend could mean mathematically, the measures could depend on each other, or they could mean what you're saying, which is a causal or mechanistic type of dependence where you're talking about interventions. But I think the word depend in that sentence, if we're going to parse it apart, could mean several different things. Yeah, it's a really tough one to explain. I can understand why it is so challenging to communicate, given both the complexity of the concepts, which honestly, I think when you first learn about them, you don't think them as all that complex. Then you learn more and you realize it's very complex. Then you start to think you understand it and you think, oh, it's not that complex. But it actually is. It's it's very complex. And when you start getting into counterfactual notation for interaction, it gets these 16 counterfactual susceptibility types. It gets really complicated. So I can see why it's it's a difficult thing to communicate. My gut still tells me here that depend is a causal depend, but who knows? I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, if the sentence said differ, I would say, oh, they're talking about effect measure modification. Because it says depend, I think immediately about interaction. 
And under the umbrella of interaction, there's different concepts, including additive and multiplicative, but the presence of the word depend is just telling me about interaction, not necessarily about some of those fine level details. But to answer a point that you were making a minute ago about how complex these topics are, as I was reading this chapter, it was a good reminder for me about A, how complex they are, but also B, to really understand this chapter. This is not an intro chapter to interaction. Like this chapter, yeah. you get the most good out point. of it when you really already have thoroughly reviewed you know the more basic whether it's from a baby rothman intro epi a gordis or a slow and yato or something like that this is not a chapter that you want to jump into as oh i'd like to learn more about what interaction is this is a definite advanced modern epi chapter perhaps some of the most complex concepts in the textbook i would even argue yeah i would agree this is not easy stuff from a conceptual standpoint i do think that you can can develop some reasonable approaches to this. I mean, my general guidance would be to focus on additive interaction, both because, again, mm -hmm. because I think it, it tells you about the questions that you're going to be most interested in, which is either the public health relevance or the biologic interaction. Think carefully about what causal statements you want to make. Do you want to be able to make causal statements about just the first exposure or the joint effects of two exposures? And yep. then third, think carefully about confounding and whether you need to control for confounding of just the exposure outcome contrast or also the modifier outcome contrast. But still, conceptually, it's hard. Yeah, really important takeaways, kind of a high-level summary of what I think we've discussed from this chapter. All right, so to wrap up, what is your feeling on approaching this topic from the counterfactual standpoint? Do you find it overwhelming? Do you find it helpful? I find, like most things with the counterfactual notation, initially, I find it overwhelming. But then when you sit with it and think about it some more, I do find it helpful to clarify some of the concepts. And so I, again, that's the like highest level of trying to understand interaction is, is delving into that counterfactual notation. But I, I do find it helpful once I, once I sit with it and, and kind of get over my fear of the notation of it all. Yeah, I am the same. I, I initially found it so overwhelming that I almost thought about not teaching it. But when I actually sat with it and worked through, so, and to, be, to put some specificity to it, so we can think about what happens to a person if you're talking about two dichotomous exposures, we can think about what happens to them in terms of their outcome under each of the four possible combinations of the exposure. You can have A but not B, B but not A, A and B, or neither A or B. And you can use that to define causal interaction contrast that would get you at that you know, physical or biological or mechanistic interaction. And I find that to be really clarifying, but it is complicated because there are now 16 potential outcomes that a person can have. And it, it takes time sitting with those and digesting them and really understanding them. Yeah, so it needs to kind of come in the sequence of presenting interaction effect modification, further information on interaction, and then it's kind of the third class, the third level about this topic is, is sitting with those formulas, trying to understand them better. But I think that it, it's important as a clarifying point to distinguish these concepts more clearly. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, the last thing is, was there anything in this chapter that you found that was new to you? That's so funny. You were mentioning 
asking that because I was actually just thinking about a, how I could pose a question or, or make a comment about there's a section where they just the, the title of the section is synergism and mechanistic interactions. And it talks about different thresholds for the relative excess risk of interaction, R-E-R-I. Or one time you told me you call it a RIRI. RIRI. I don't know if you still do that. It's the RIRI. So if the relative excess risk of interaction is greater than zero, it's indication of additive interaction. If it's greater than one, it's indicative of sufficient cause interaction. And if it's greater than two, it's indicative of epistatic interaction. And this concept of epistatic interaction, I think I'd seen the term before, but I learned a lot about what it exactly means. It's a, a stronger idea related to interaction. And I'm going to find the definition for you. Epistatic interaction is present if there are individuals in the population who will have the outcome if and only if both exposures are present, which I thought was an interesting concept that I hadn't thought through. But it's, again, helpful to understand the counterfactual notation when you're trying to think through these these concepts of epistatic interaction. Was, was that something that you were familiar with before this chapter? Nope. That's what I was getting at. So there is a lot more specificity to how you can actually define these sort of mechanistic interactions. So, I mean, in, in the simplest of all possible terms, you can have a situation where you only get the outcome if you have A and B. So if you have A, you don't get it. You have B, you don't get it. You have neither, you don't get it. But if you've got A and B, you're going to get the outcome. But you can also mm -hmm. have a situation where you're going to get it if you have neither A nor B, you have A, you have B, you will get the outcome. But you don't get it if you get A and B and somehow they sort of cancel each other out. And there are all these different combinations that you can come up with. Whether or not they really exist for any actual exposure outcome pair is going to depend on the specifics of the biology and, and physiology of, of those different conditions. But the fact that there are ways you can actually tease some of those out from making additional assumptions and knowing the way the math works out is surprising to me. But it also means that there are a lot more caveats to just looking at the departure from additivity and making the assumption of biologic interaction that you sort of you also need to make a few more assumptions that I was not aware of. Yeah, I, I agree that the assumptions may be a bit strict, but I thought they did a really nice job in the chapter of presenting these concepts. You know, yep. conceptually, they present this is the just quote unquote simple additive. And then you need to make a little bit more of an assumption when you're looking at sufficient cause interaction. And then you need to make even more stringent assumptions when you're deciding whether there's epistatic interaction present. So I thought even though conceptually it is challenging to understand, the chapter builds on it really nicely, I thought. And it, I learned a lot by reading it. All right. Well, that's, pro that's probably a good place for us to end. But I would point out that so we are obviously going to have a follow on discussion on this with a guest who is coming up. And hopefully we can get at least a third opinion on this as to whether or not the way that we're using the terminology differently is if there is any standard within the field. Not that asking one more person is really going to clarify that, but it'll be interesting Wait, to get Wait, three is opinion. not enough to make a conclusion? As to which is the dominant, if two people in the conversation see it one way and one person sees it the other, that does not mean that is the way the majority of the field sees it. Do you know which way this person's views lie? Nope, no idea. Okay, good. Because otherwise I was going to say we should we should disinvite them if they don't agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is the way it should always go. Obviously. Um, all right. Well, this was a, a really fun chapter to discuss. As I mentioned, I really like this chapter. It's like uh, brain gymnastics for me every yep. time I try to think about uh, interaction. So I, again, I think that, again, I'm looking forward to having our guest come on next episode to help us understand these concepts in even more depth. And I look forward to that episode. So 
For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you discount or fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Austin, Texas. It also gets you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast, the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Inference. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. As a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts alone and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode coming up next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.